Welcome to Univara Live. I'm, as always, Moya Lothian McLean, and tonight I'm joined by political economist Kieran Andrew. Kieran, hello. As ever, Moya, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Coming up later tonight, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is still refusing to apologise for the joke he made about trans women in the Commons yesterday. Evictions in the UK have hit an eight-year high. We'll be looking at what's driving that. And reports of the abuse Palestinians face from Israeli forces when using so-called safe routes in Gaza. We'll be discussing those too. Let's go to our first story. Labour have today officially dropped their pledge to fund green investment with £28 billion a year. Let's be clear. Uh, what are you binning today and what are you keeping? Since we announced the Green Prosperity Plan, we've made a number of very important commitments like green steel so we can continue to make steel in this country, gigafactories so we can do the next generation of cars, a national wealth fund so that we can have investment coming in for the jobs of the future, and GB Energy, which will be a publicly owned company so that where we invest in energy in this country, we get the yield back for taxpayers. All of that is staying. So every single commitment that we've made um, that is on the table is staying. The warm homes commitment is scaled down. That'll take a bit longer, but everything else is exactly as announced. What we're announcing today is that we won't be making further investments um, and therefore we won't reach the 28 billion, which is effectively stood down. Now, the reason for that is because of the damage the Tories have done to the economy. Um, you know, the interest rates have gone through the roof. We have to adjust uh, they want to max out the credit card at the first opportunity. So we've had to adjust to that. But the commitments we've made stay on the table. They will now find their way into our manifesto. So to clarify, there is no £28 billion a year target anymore. Just a vague promise of green investment. And the BBC also reports that Labour's warm homes plan to insulate Britain's homes has been scaled back, as Starmer said, but it's been scaled back from reaching 19 million homes over a decade to just 5 million homes over five years. It took until 5pm for Starmer to confirm this U-turn, but the world and his wife knew already. In fact, you couldn't move for headlines proclaiming that the Labour leader was about to roll back on his flagship green policy. First to report the leaked announcement was The Guardian last night. And there's been rumblings over the future of this policy for a while. In fact, it's already been watered down. The BBC even worked up a handy little timeline showing the progression of Labour's £28 billion pledge. The pledge was first announced by Rachel Reeves at the 2021 Labour conference. Back then, it was a promise that Labour would make £28 billion of green investment every year until 2030. This didn't last. In June 2023, that became £28 billion a year after 2027. And then in November 2023, journalists started getting briefed that Labour were considering dropping the policy, which brings us to this current moment. Criticism of the U-turn is pouring in, though, from all wings of the party. This was former Blair advisor John McTernan speaking on Newsnight. It's probably the most stupid decision the Labour Party's made. What would Tony Blair have done? I don't really care what Tony Blair would have done because Tony was the leader in the 20th century. Keir's going to be Prime Minister in the, the second quarter of the 21st century. This is a decision that we have to make now to decarbonise our economy. And it's one which stands for a purpose, a great purpose, a grand purpose. Great parties have great causes. If you don't have a great cause, you want to change from this government, sure, but change to what? What's, what's the change Labour now offers? 
It's not just politicos who are upset, though. According to the director of the More in Common think tank, Luke Terrell, the Green Investment Pledge was Labour's second most popular manifesto policy with Labour voters. And the economic arguments that led Labour to shelve a rare, clear and popular policy are, of course, Tory ones, as Chancellor Jeremy Hunt outlined earlier this week. This was Hunt in the House of Commons on Tuesday in an exchange with a Tory MP that definitely wasn't a setup. Could the Chancellor explain to the House if he had an ambition to spend an additional £28 billion a year on something, what level of tax would that impose on ordinary households? Well, I thank her for asking that question. I'm curious as to where that figure £28 billion, has come from. But uh, as she has asked it, I will tell her that to increase spending by £28 billion, if you're going to stick to fiscal rules, as the party opposite claims they will do, would mean increasing income tax by 4% or increasing the corporation tax that they say they're going to cap by 8%. So what Hunt says there is that income tax and corporation tax would need to go up to fund Labour's green pledges. A.K. listen up, ordinary people and businesses, be afraid. And in that same session, Hunt also said Labour's policy involves borrowing that would push up inflation. But is that really the whole story? Kieran, Jeremy Hunt claims Labour's green policy would mean more inflation and higher taxes, but we already have more inflation and higher taxes. So... Is Jeremy Hunt right on this? In brief, no. And I'd like to just rewind slightly um, and illustrate why he's not right with a very recent example. Ultimately, what he's saying speaks to the economic illiteracy and ideological vandalism that has got us into a great deal of trouble in this country over the past 15 years. Because it's the same set of so-called... economic principles that stopped us from investing in infrastructure, in uh, the workforce, uh, in frontline services, and crucially overall in in an overarching industrial strategy, while interest rates were at historic lows. Essentially, we we passed up the opportunity to borrow money for nothing or very near to nothing all on the premise that by not borrowing and simultaneously cutting the state down to size, we would, otherwise known as austerity, of course, uh, we would reduce the year-on-year deficit and we would reduce the GDP-to-debt ratio or the debt-to-GDP ratio. How did that work out for us? Not very well. The debt-to-GDP ratio barely changed from around 80%. Um, through that decade. It's now, since COVID, shot up to around 100% or 100% plus. Uh, Growth has basically been stagnant or very, very slow indeed relative to the 2000s and the 1990s. Uh, Productivity has barely increased over the same period. Living standards for the uh, majority of Brits and particularly, of course, for the poor have gone into reverse. So it was a failed economic model by all indicators. Um, well, it's true, some of those conditions have shifted. They've changed since that period. So interest rates are now at 5%. That, that is true. And generally, one wants to keep uh, debt down as much as one can. But nonetheless, um, we find ourselves in a situation in which we have to borrow. We have to borrow. Um, and it is utterly necessary to do so to avoid another lost decade of economic growth. And of course, that kind of sidesteps 
the real crux of all of this, which is that we're borrowing for, well, essentially to safeguard the future and to safeguard the environment. I'll return to that in a moment. But I mean, it, this whole thing about debt is, in the words of Robert Skidelsky, who's a lord, by the way, he's hardly a Marxist, um, he refers to national debt as a scarecrow, something that's wheeled out to frighten the public into accepting the demolition of uh, their public services, of a negation of green spending targets, and so on. And you just have to run the most basic empirical comparison or test to see that he's right. The United States, for example, has a debt-to-GDP ratio of 129%. Honduras has a debt-to-GDP ratio of 48%. Now, Honduras is a wonderful country, but Nobody in their right mind would argue that it has more economic or investment capacity than the United States. It's a facetious argument and it requires a, a facetious response as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, so too is the uh, low tax argument. You know, the, the Chancellor recently mentioned, I think as you referred to, Moya, the 8% increase in corporation tax as prohibitive. Well, to take just one of a billion empirical examples, California has one of the highest corporation tax rates in the United States. What's arguably the greatest capitalist success story of the past 50 years? Silicon Valley. Um, so anyway, the final thing I think that needs to be said as well is I've given an overview of why I think the economic arguments are basically rubbish. But uh, the final thing that needs to be said is that the imminence, the imminent collapse of life support systems on this planet the only life support systems our species knows you would think isn't one for uh, pinching pounds and pence but if it were we could do no better than look for money from the rich but that's a discussion i think for another day i do want to pick up on what you said there about uh this you know we need to borrow to invest in industry because it's a key part of this what labor are talking about is borrowing to invest in green industry, right? Um, and But the Tories and Labour, they keep treating that idea of borrowing in general like it will bankrupt the country. Is this accurate? No, it's absolutely not accurate. It's, it's never... I mean, there are times when you can borrow um, as a government and it's badly advised. There are lenders who... Um, one thing I also I think it's important to say is that lenders, markets, which are often prayed in aid to by these politicians who want to help out their cronies, generally speaking, empirically speaking, there's more evidence that markets prefer to lend to a government that is wanting to invest in technological solutions to long-term problems than willing to lend to governments who are trying to finance tax cuts, essentially. Tax cuts for the rich and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, the, again, this comes back to what I was saying about debt to GDP ratios. You can have a country like the United States, which is obviously has gross inequality, and we won't begin to talk about all of that, but which, you know, clearly is not a failure economically, has not been a failure economically over the past 150 years. There's huge industrial prowess. It's just that the riches weren't evenly shared. Um, and the debt to GDP ratio is ast quite astronomical. 38 billion, I think it's, sorry, 38 trillion uh, dollars worth of debt the United States is in currently um, and climbing all the time. So 
Uh, absolutely not. The correlation is merely a correlation. There are many, many other indicators as to whether it's wise to borrow at a particular juncture. It's important to say this country, given the given its economic conditions at present, has no choice but to borrow money. And it has, in my opinion, no choice but to tax the rich and tax wealth rather than income as soon as possible if it wants to have a serious industrial strategy fit to meet the challenges of the 21st century. It has no other option. Yeah, I think that's very pertinent. And also, you know, this this U-turn goes against uh, what both Starmer and Sunak have been preaching about what they need to give business and industry, which is that long-term stability. They keep making these U-turns. There is no long-term stability for all those private investors they keep talking about targeting. Uh, let's check the comms doc. So first of all, just a little bit of climate context for this story from our producer Fox. He says, Starmer has announced this rollback of green investment on the same day that for the first time global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius across the entire year, which is, as we all know, not good. Let's go to our next story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is still facing a backlash after making a transphobic joke in the House of Commons. It's a bit rich, Mr Speaker, to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The, the list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises, and absolutely no plan. Of all the weeks to say that, when Brianna's mother is in this chamber, shame. As Labour leader Keir Starmer pointed out there, Sunak made the gag while the mother of murdered teen Brianna Jai was present. Brianna was trans and her gender identity had a bearing on her murder. The 16-year-old killers were sentenced last week by a judge who said the crime was transphobic in nature. After Sunak's Commons remarks, Brianna's father, Peter Spooner, spoke to Sky News. He said this. As the Prime Minister for our country, to come out with degrading comments like he did, regardless of them being in relation to discuss discussions in Parliament, they are absolutely dehumanising. Identities of people should not be used in that manner, and I personally feel shocked by his comments and feel he should apologise for his remarks. Well, Rishi Sunak is resolutely not apologising. Like everyone, I was completely shocked by Brianna's case. To have your child taken from you in such awful circumstances is almost impossible to come to terms with. And for Brianna's mum to talk with such empathy and compassion about that, I thought was inspiring and it showed the very best of humanity. I have nothing but the most heartfelt sympathy for her entire family and, and friends. You know, but to use that tragedy to detract from the very separate and clear point I was making about Keir Starmer's proven track record of multiple U-turns on major policies because he doesn't have a plan, I think is both sad and wrong and it demonstrates the worst of politics. The father has demanded an apology from you, so will you honour that? If you look at what I said, I was very clear talking about Keir Starmer's proven track record of U-turns on major policies because he doesn't have a plan, a point only proven by today's reports that the Labour Party and Keir Starmer are apparently planning to reverse on their signature economic 
green spending policy. That just demonstrates the point I was making. He's someone who has just consistently changed his mind on a whole range of major things. And I think that is an absolutely legitimate thing to point out. And it demonstrates that he doesn't have a plan for the country. Robot Rishi strikes again, a man almost uniquely unable to judge mood or empathise. What's been interesting, though, is the reaction of the political and media establishment to Sunak's horrible joke. There's been heightened hostility and Sunak's ministers have been sent out to defend him. Here's Policing Minister Chris Philp facing a grilling on the BBC. I'm asking you if you think it was respectful. I think he was talking about Labour's and Keir Starmer's flip-flops and, and U-turns. Do you think it was respectful to talk about Sir Keir Starmer's views on trans people at that time? Do you think it was respectful? Well, he was, ta- uh, he was talking about Labour's policy flip-flops, and that is a reasonable thing to do. He made The Prime Minister made no reference at all to any individual uh, trans people. It was Keir Starmer who introduced that. The Prime Minister was making a point about Labour's very numerous flip-flops, another one of which okay. we're seeing that's today, your, illustrating they've got no plan. Then. Presenter Nadja Man- Manchetti then asked Philp if Brianna's father, Peter Spooner, should get the apology he requested. Is Peter Spooner, the father of Brianna Jai, going to get a, an apology from Rishi Sunak? Well, I was very, very sad um, to read or to hear about those comments um, from Brianna's father uh, yesterday when he made those. As I say, I think anyone who uh, is interested in this issue should actually listen to the clip, listen to the, ex- the, the initial exchange So are you saying Peter PMQs. Spooner has misunderstood what Rishi Sunak has said? Look, I, I'm in, I've got every respect for, obviously, the, the fuse and feelings of a, of a bereaved um, father. Do you think he deserves an apology? Look... I think if you just li- people should listen to the clip, form their own view. I've he listened, has I, listened I, I, to the clip. I've, I've, I've I listened, cannot imagine on. that the father of a child no, who was murdered a year ago this Sunday has not listened to that clip. And I, I think it's quite disingenuous for you to suggest he hasn't. No, He's no, asked no, for an on, apology. Do you I think not, he'll wait, get wait, one? Wait, 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 wait. I, did not, that's, I did not for a second suggest that. I'm saying that people who want but to form a view... But my question to you was about whether Peter Spooner would get an apology, not about people listening to the clip. OK. Look, I've already said repeatedly that the Prime Minister made no reference to any individual uh, in his remarks yesterday. Sunak has also been criticised from both sides of the Commons. Several Tory MPs have condemned the jibe. And even Commons leader Penny Morden obliquely rebuked Sunak in the chamber today. The Prime Minister is a good and caring man. I'm sure that he has reflected on things and I understand he will say something later today, or perhaps even during this session. Morden's comments were a few hours before Sunak did not apologise. But I want to play you a clip that I found particularly emblematic of the media response to Sunak's comments. And this is from one of the most listened to podcasts in the UK, not just political podcasts, most listened to podcasts full stop. And if you haven't heard of it, it's called The News Agents. And it's hosted by three former BBC political journalists, Emily Maitlis, Lewis Goodall and John Sopel. Here's Goodall discussing Rishi Sunak's transphobic comment on yesterday's show. There are questions again about Sunak's political judgment, his emotional judgment, his political um, dexterity. I think there is also something slightly wider going on here as well, which is that, you know what's particularly sad about, about this is that it doesn't come out of nowhere. The truth is that if it hadn't been for the murder of Brianna Jai, and it hadn't been for the fact that Esther Jai was on the parliamentary estate when this happened, Westminster wouldn't have batted an eyelid. Sunak makes these gags 
all the time. Not just Sunak as well. Previous Conservative Prime Ministers and senior politicians make trans people, or at the very least, the really, really emotionally charged and delicate debate, which should exist, sensitive debate, around trans people and trans issues, because of course they're legitimate questions, but they make it the butt of the joke time after time about the precisely the sort of issue that should not be the butt of the joke, about which politicians should speak gently and unsensitively. I mean, you know, just to give you another example, I remember last year going to see a Suella Breverman speech. What did she say? She said that um, uh, Keir Starmer might be Labour's first female prime minister. You know, all of this sort of stuff, it happens again and again and again. I think the extent of, the extent to which trans issues and trans people have become the butt of a political joke in Westminster, a cheap shot, a cheap gag, speaks to a certain level, frankly, of transphobia, which has started to infect British political debate. And this should be a wake-up call because wherever you stand on this issue, and as I say, there are legitimate questions and that's absolutely fine and those questions should be contested in a respectful manner. Wherever you stand, surely we can all agree that politicians ought to at least act responsibly with regards to it and that there are plenty of other, plenty of other material that they can use and take up to make you know, pretty poor political jokes. If you'll forgive me, I want to indulge in a spot of personal analysis here, much in the vein of the newsagents team themselves. Because Lewis Goodall's framing of this issue really sums up how mainstream political journalism understands transphobia. Goodall says that there is a level of transphobia that's started to infect British political debate. Not only that, even to make that point, he has to repeatedly cite, you know, apparent legitimate concerns in trans issues discussions before he can even get you know, saying something about transphobia across in the first place. I want to make this clear. Transphobia is not just starting to infect British political debate. It has been live and present in the upper echelons of parliamentary politics for the last three years. It is why any attempts at reform to make it easier to legally recognise someone's gender identity have completely died a death. It's why senior ministers in the Conservative Party are threatening to alter the Equality Act to bar trans people from single-sex spaces, even if they possess legal recognition that they have changed their sex in the eyes of the law. It's why guidance issued to schools now frames children who think they might be transgender as simply confused kids and puts up as many legal barriers as possible to prevent those children getting support. It's why official government documents refer to being trans as gender identity ideology. It's why the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom can stand at the dispatch box and make a joke taking aim at the leader of the opposition where the punchline solely rests on mocking trans women. It's why the leader of the opposition faces questions like can a woman have a penis from supposedly weighty political journalists in the first place. These are the matters dominating political debate while our country's infrastructure crumbles. And why are our politicians focused on both mocking and legally persecuting a group of people who number less than 300,000 out of 67 million? It's because mainstream UK media, including the sensible, liberal titles and podcasts like those hosted by Lewis Goodall and Emily Maitlis, have spent the past seven years amplifying their legitimate questions again and again and again. Questions which boil down to repeated negative coverage of trans people. Because before 2015, trans lives were barely mentioned in the press. But between May 2014 and May 2019, 
Stories relating to trans people jumped by 414%. At least that's what research by Ipso found. And the content of these stories? Well, linguistics researcher Paul Baker analysed the language used by UK media, including titles like The Guardian, The Observer, The Telegraph, The Times, you know, that sensible, conservative, but liberal media. And Baker found this. On the surface, there appear to have been improvements. The more sexualizing and joking uses of language around trans people have reduced since 2012. And there are many more stories about around transphobia and inclusivity. However, there are large swathes of the press which write about these topics in order to be critical of trans people. And many articles which consequently paint trans people as unreasonable and aggressive. The picture suggests that the conservative press and most of the tabloids have shifted from an openly hostile and ridiculing stance on trans people towards a carefully worded but still very negative stance. I think that movement would be familiar to anybody who has studied the passage and movement of things like racism and sexism in this country, where it moves from the overt to the insidious. And I have sat, personally I have sat, and witnessed the legitimate concerns of the liberal and conservative mainstream press get louder and louder since I was 21 years old. I have watched it become a full-blown moral panic. And what I see in the backlash against Rissy Sunak from the press and fellow politicians on this joke about the murdered teenager Brianna Jai is two things. One, Sunak violated the respect doctrine, which is that you can do incredibly disrespectful and dehumanizing things in politics so long as they are targeted at a faceless group. Esther Jai and her murdered daughter represent the very human face of people impacted by transphobia. And Esther G is also a cis person who is grieving her daughter, which adds to the empathy that she is afforded by this establishment media class. And two, the second thing that is in that backlash to Rishi Sunak is that in 2017, I just want to go back there, in 2017, then Prime Minister Theresa May addressed the audience of an LGBTQ award ceremony. And she said this, we as in we, the Conservative Party, are determined to eradicate homophobic and transphobic bullying. We have laid out plans to reform the Gender Recognition Act, streamlining and demedicalizing the process for changing gender, because being trans is not an illness and it should not be treated as such. Can you imagine Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak promising what Theresa May did, or saying, rightly, that being trans is not an illness and should not be treated as such? No because the moral panic has worked. Flash forward seven years, hate crime against trans people is up 186% over five years. Homophobic hate crime is up 112% over the same period. The earth has been thoroughly scorched. And this is why I think liberal media is happy, is comfortable to now retreat to objecting about the ugly rhetoric now commonplace in politics regarding trans people, while simultaneously ignoring their role in enabling that rhetoric. And it is because they know the rights of trans people will remain absolutely stagnant for the next few years. And the group think now returns to, it's okay, we can go easy again. And it is the same playbook we have seen with asylum seekers. It is the same sort of pattern we saw with the policies put forward in 2015 by the Labour Party that were ridiculed, that were mocked, that were taken apart, that were posed as the biggest threat to this country in years. And now you see those same policies championed, mooted, suggested in liberal media. 
And to people who have been taken in by this panic, this panic around trans people, I just want to say something. I want to say I am sorry for the years you have wasted. And I am sorry that you have been part of something that not only dehumanizes trans people, but robs cis people too, and prevents a focus on the real issues that we should have been jointly fighting for that impact us all. And that's all I want to say there. Let's go to our next story. Khan Yunus, in the south of Gaza, has been under Israeli attack for weeks, forcing the mass displacement of civilians south to Rafa. The Nasser Hospital, the largest in the region, remains under sniper fire. There are 450 patients, 300 medical staff and 10,000 displaced Palestinians trapped inside with little food and water. This 14-year-old girl was shot and killed outside the hospital when she went looking for water. Other Palestinians sheltering inside the compound then risked their lives retrieving her body under sniper fire. Those trapped inside are now using a cart on rope to transport water into the compound to avoid the sniper fire. And horrifically, you can still see the bloodstain from the girl who was shot on the road. The Alamal Hospital, also in Khan Yunus, has been under siege and attack too. Palestinians sheltering inside have now begun to flee the compound, with Palestinian Red Crescent workers forced to evacuate patients in their hospital beds. Those who can will head south to Rafa, a town on the Egyptian border now housing around half of Gaza's 2.3 million residents. Before the war, it was home to less than 300,000 people, but the route to Rafa is difficult. And in the last few days, more than 100,000 people have passed through what the IDF has called a, quote, safe corridor running west from Khan Yunus to the coast. Now details have emerged of the harassment and abuse they've experienced at the hands of the IDF while using that corridor, including being forced to chant anti-Hamas slogans. Israeli magazine 972 spoke to several Palestinians who've made the journey. Ibit Sam Mahdi is a Gazan journalist who fled Khan Yunus with her husband and children, and this is what happened to her. The army separated men from women and instructed us to kneel. Then an officer began to lecture us, blaming Hamas for our displacement, the destruction of our homes, our need to seek refuge, and the fear we are experiencing. He then told us that in order to be allowed to pass through the checkpoint unharmed, we had to chant slogans against the resistance. The people want the overthrow of Hamas, and God is sufficient for us, and he is the best disposer of affairs against Hamas and the Qassam brigades, appropriating a line from the Quran. The officer insisted on the repetition of these slogans. Only after more than 45 minutes did the soldiers permit women and children to pass while men were kept behind. Ibit Sam's husband was detained for seven hours, and her account matches that of Umm Mohammed Jacklab, a 56-year-old old mother of two sons, Mohammed and Ibrahim. As the three crossed the checkpoint, her sons were separated from her by IDF soldiers. Hours later, Ibrahim was released, with 972 reporting this. Ibrahim was shivering when he arrived. The army had forced him to strip naked, including his underwear, despite the cold and rainy weather. He was then ordered to step into a pool of water, jump up and down multiple times, then get out and stand for 10 minutes before being allowed to put on his clothes and cross the checkpoint. We were humiliated extensively after the soldiers scanned our eyes with a biometric ca camera. The treatment we faced surpassed degradation. Our dignity was violated for over six hours as we sat on our knees, forbidden from sitting comfortably. That was testimony from Ibrahim. 25-year-old Khalid Zakut also fled Khan Yunus for Rafa with his wife and young son. 
972 magazine explain here. After entering the corridor to leave Carnunis, Sakut was first forced to abandon his backpack, which contained his work laptop, mobile phone, and clothes. When I tried to talk to them about the bag, they insulted me and my mother, he recounted. They ordered me to leave without further complaints. Zakut's wife and son were allowed to pass through the checkpoint, but he was held there with a large number of men. Eventually, he was let through, but his family had disappeared into the crowds, he said this. Since my exit, I've been searching for my wife and son. Forced to leave my mobile phone behind, I lost the means to communicate with them, and my wife does not know how to navigate the situation without me. These accounts aren't the first we've heard of Palestinians being abused by IDF soldiers, and since IDF soldiers cannot seem to stop filming themselves, there's also video. This footage was found on a far-right Israeli telegram channel by Middle East Eye. Around 20 Palestinian men who were detained in Gaza are blindfolded and handcuffed on a bus. An IDF soldier forces them to praise an Israeli family, the Azules, possibly his own. He forces them to chant the words, quote, We, the terrorists from Gaza, are very afraid of the entire Azule family. The Azule family is very, very, very respectable, important, and we want to be the slaves of the Azule family forever and ever. It's almost a caricature of the abuse of power. Palestinians in Gaza are enduring abuse by the IDF because they want to reach safety in Rafa, but of course there is no safe place in Gaza, not even at its southernmost end. Airstrikes on the city have intensified and on Wednesday night, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu confirmed that he has ordered the IDF to begin operations in Rafa, leaving Palestinians shouting there with nowhere else to go. Kieran, what does this continued and documented abuse say about the most moral army in the world? Well, it says it could act, um, continue to act with impunity. Um, but I think most importantly, what it says is that a systematic process of dehumanization has, has moved so far, has taken hold so extensively um, that I struggle, though. Uh, you know, I hope that I'm wrong. I struggle to see a way back on that front. You know, it's uh, Israelis, including in the army, in the end are human beings. They're human beings. And so in order to preside over such unimaginable cruelty, a very successful process of dehumanization um, of the other must have taken place. And it doesn't take place in four months, it takes place over many, many, many decades. Um, and we know that this is obviously inalienable from the project of settler colonialism. And now bringing it to what seems to be, you know, it's a, it's attempted telos genocide. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about um, watching some of those um some of that footage and reading some of that, I thought about Hannah Arendt, uh, not somebody I particularly admire, wrote about the banality of evil. None of this seems banal to me. None of it seems banal, I have to say. It doesn't seem like um, cogs in a machine. It, as you said, almost seems, Moya, well, yeah, you said, like a caricature of, of I, I believe, cruelty or oppression. And uh, that seems to capture it more accurately. Uh, than anything like the banality of evil or some sort of consequence of I don't know what. But 
rather than Arel, um, I've been thinking about James Baldwin and about what James Baldwin said um, about his own experience as an African American in uh, during the civil rights struggles in the 1960s and 70s. And um, it's a good way of centering Palestinians in this again, rather than thinking about the systematic process of dehumanization and the cruelty of the IDF and the Israeli state. What he said was, it probably comes as a terrible shock to the colonial mindset that I want what you want. All I want is to be left alone. I don't want you to help me. I don't want anything else. I just want to be left alone. And what's tragic is, what's heartbreaking is that every single one of those Palestinians that we've featured in, this, in, in all of these stories around Khan Yunis and beyond, all they want is for nothing more extravagant or outlandish than to be left alone. Let's go to our next story. The Conservatives' 2019 manifesto promised a, quote, better deal for renters. And I'm still waiting. That better deal included the abolition of Section 21, no-fault evictions, which allow landlords to get their tenants out of their properties on a whim. Of course, that manifesto pledge has never materialised, with the renters' reform bill still delayed. In the meantime, things are worse for renters than ever the number of no-fault evictions hit an eight-year high in 2023, according to Ministry of Justice figures. Last year, over 30,000 no-fault eviction court proceedings were started by landlords. In 2022, the number was around 24,000. That's an increase of 25% in just 12 months. And it's the highest number of no-fault eviction cases since 2016. Now, these figures are only for cases that reach court, so the actual number of Section 21 evictions issued will be much, much greater. So why are the figures so high? One reason is mortgage interest rate rises, with many landlords raising rents to protect their profits or avoid repossession, but that's not the full picture. Here's Connor O'Shea from campaign group Generation Rent. These eviction statistics are obviously really shocking. We're reaching new highs once again, and to be honest, at the moment, statistics involving renting are just stories of new highs over and over again. Rents are going through the roof. Uh, and here we are again with evictions that just keep continuously rising. Uh, one of the key reasons for this is that the um, Renters Reform Bill hasn't gone through. It's a piece of legislation that the government put forward. They promised over four years ago in their, in their 2019 manifesto that they were going to abolish these Section 21 no-fault evictions, which is the clause, the piece of legislation that means that um, tenants can be removed from their home in just eight weeks through no fault of their own, so no fault eviction. And the fact that these continue to exist are the key drivers for the fact that these evictions can happen. To be honest, these stats are um, a bit of an undercount. These are only the ones that make it to court. And there are so many more happening out there as we speak because renters just have no choice. Once they receive one of these, they have to go. And it fundamentally underpins all of the problems that exist in the private rented sector at the moment. The good landlords are broadly in support of this, that they understand that Section 21 is draconian, it's completely out of date, it's not fit for purpose in the 21st century, and it's not fit for purpose in a country in which so many people are renting and will continue to rent throughout their life. Look, I work for a generation rent, but that's a bit of a misnomer, you know, because in truth, there are going to be people across their lives who are renting. It's not a young person issue in particular. And we know that with such a high proportion of people 
and such a high volume of people living in the private rented sector that we need to have better protection for these renters for life. And the bare minimum that the government can do is scrap this Section 21. Let landlords, the, the large landlord organisations agree that it can go. There's no reason at all why it shouldn't um, be removed as soon as possible. And the government delaying continuously and having an anchor around this piece of legislation is helping no one. Conor O'Shea from Generation Rent there. As far as what Labour is saying, they seem to be sticking to their pledge to ban no-fault evictions when they take power, though the crucial words there are so far. Kieran, would sorting out the private private rental market help housing overall? It would be, in my estimation, a very important tip of a much larger iceberg. Um, I think... It was, I don't want to praise the Tories in any way, shape or form, but when we first saw the proposed legislation, and I work in local government, I think many people, including on the left, were pleasantly surprised, though very sceptical, that it would ever be, that this bill would ever be realised, ever be successfully delivered. I remain very, very more sceptical than ever, actually. Um, And um, my... My prediction is that it's going to be canned before before we see it um, come into fruition, unfortunately. But it's it's the important tip of a much large, larger iceberg. The reason I say that is not to be perfectionist about things or make perfect the enemy of the good or whatever it is that Tories like to say. It's, it's because the knock-on effect will be substantial but not overly significant. And I think what really needs to happen is the whole relationship, the whole social contract um, around land in this country needs to be upended, frankly. Um, And again, I was speaking in faraway abstractions, but this does need to be seen in in the round. So there needs to be, first of all, major protections for private renters, of course, which is what we're talking about. There also needs to be a massive council house building programme, which to link the themes as you did earlier, Moya, with the I want to be left alone stuff, uh, would require a lot of borrowing and a hike on taxes for rich people predominantly and for their wealth rather than their income predominantly. But there is, again, no way out. I mean, we face such serious structural problems around housing and the relationship of people to land in this country that I can't really see any other option than a massive house building programme led by the government perhaps with some development uh, developer partnerships there, but led by the government, alongside much better regulation for private renters and so on. And part and parcel, in an early iteration of the private renters bill, there was something about repossessing vacant second properties. Now, that has basically disappeared into the ether uh, with the passage of time. Something like that needs to be front and centre of anything like this, because there are there aren't enough houses in this country. There aren't enough homes. There aren't enough flats. But yeah, you know, a significant part of that is because those that already exist are either lying empty, the part of a, a property speculator's portfolio, uh, or they're not technically empty, but they're not being they're, they're being very scantily inhabited, underinhabited. Um, so. I think that all of those things need to happen. 
basically, in order to make a success of this. One thing, private renters bill without the others, ultimately, it, it might stem the flow, but in a decade, we'll see the same structural problems re-emerging. The other thing I would say is, I want to make just a very brief, <clears throat> excuse me, philosophical point, which is conservatives are supposed to be the party of community stability, family, the nuclear family, and so on. There is now enormous evidence to suggest that nothing has put greater pressure on the family, the nuclear family, which conservatives claim to care about so much, uh, than for two things. One, job insecurity, and two, household insecurity. So, you know, they'd be well advised if they um, ha owe any fealty whatsoever to their professed principles to sorting those things out um, on, on that basis alone. I know it's been a heavy show tonight, so I just want to go a bit off piece and bring you a slight bit of good news, and it's related to the environment. And that is that the River Mersey, which was once judged biologically dead, has been recorded as having the greatest river recovery in Europe, thanks to a cleanup operation that's been going on since the 1990s. Um, and the River Mersey last year, 45 species of fish were recorded, including scorpions and eels, apparently fish, were recorded living in the Mersey. In 2002, there were only 15. It is no longer the dirty Mersey. So that's after 200 years of industrial pollution, a real, you know, solid effort can be made. We can recover our green spaces, our natural water sources. It can be done. I wanted to end on that because it has been really heavy and we can't keep going unless we see where the hope can come from. And even small things like the revitalization of a huge river source in a former industrial stronghold can provide us that little bit of optimism and hope. Kieran, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. And you're right, it has been a heavy show, but you're also right that we can reverse things. We can build sufficient homes. We can change the relationship between land and people in this country, throw off the property-owning classes. We can free Palestine, and we can also have an industrial strategy paid for by the rich. Thank you. Thanks. And I also want to stress, I don't think scorpions are, are fish. It's just the story was talking about fish and then it says scorpions. So uh, I know that they're not fish. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. Please come back tomorrow. Please do for another show from 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navara Media. Don't forget the name. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.